You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today I'm interviewing clinical professor Peter Silbert, who trained in neurology in WA and the Mayo Clinic. He's been head of the Department of Neurology at Royal Perth Hospital, director of state neurology and head of neurology services for WA. He is clinical professor of neurology at UWA. In addition to his academic work, his private practice is confined to neurophysiology and botulinum toxin therapy. Today, I'm interviewing Peter on peripheral neuropathies. Welcome, Peter. Thanks, Sean. So, Peter, how do you think about peripheral neuropathies as a group? It's, it's really such a huge topic, mainly because peripheral neuropathies are so common. Uh, we know that about 5% of patients over the age of 55 have a neuropathy, 10% over the age of 70. But there was a recent article in Nature Scientific Reports where they did monofilament skin testing, which is probably more sensitive over the age of 65 than EMG. And it showed that if you're between 40 and 69, 10% of patients had a sensory neuropathy. And over the age of 70, 27% of patients had a clinical sensory neuropathy. Gee, that's a lot. It is, and I think that sort of highlights why this is so much a part of general practice. You know, it's the filtering as to whether you need to refer, whether you need to investigate, what is the cause. If we look at it a bit further in how we classify neuropathies, there are a huge number of really complex classifications. But it can get simple. We can talk about generalised peripheral neuropathies, which are the glove and stocking, that is the hands and feet sensory neuropathy, and they're length dependent. The longer the nerve, it's the end of the nerves that are affected. And then we've got all the focal mononeuropathies, things like carpal tunnel, uh, ulnar nerves, but I'm not really going to talk about them any further than to say that we see those more commonly if patients have an underlying generalised neuropathy because the nerves are more vulnerable to pressure. There is a subgroup of that, what we used to call mononeuritis multiplex, where patients will knock off different nerves in different directions, usually due to a vasculitis, but that is an uncommon condition. And most of the cases I referred to above with that high prevalence, generalised peripheral neuropathies. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a good way to uh, think about and classify them. So what are the clinical clues or presentations to a patient having a peripheral neuropathy? Those clinical clues are going to roll out in your consultation. I mean, a, a simple first up one is the time course. And these sort of clinical clues will become relevant when we think about how much do we have to investigate, how do we manage them, do we need to refer them. So time course, if we see someone with a relatively rapid onset, progressive neuropathy over a matter of weeks, and Guillain-Barre syndrome is a classic example of that, then that's going to be a really important factor in how we manage that as opposed to someone with a more slow, insidious onset. If someone has motor weakness, that can direct us a little further. But sensory character is really very important. When we look at the nerve fibres, different nerve fibres will give a burning discomfort. They're the small, unmyelinated nerve fibres, whereas the large, myelinated nerve fibres tend to give more of a numbness, tingling, or they can be a proprioceptive impairment. And it's often a combination of the three. The burning, we, the classic example of that we always see is diabetes, but there's a lot of other causes. The proprioceptive, that gets much more complex. That's where patients don't, we do joint position sense testing and they get a bit unsteady on their feet. And that sometimes overlaps a little bit where it's not just the peripheral nerve, but it's the dorsal root ganglia, which is the nerve cell body for the nerve or the posterior columns of the spinal cord. And so once you start taking the history and you're going through 
those symptoms. Have they got weakness? What sort of sensory impairment? It actually guides you a little bit as to whether you're thinking this is peripheral glove and stocking or whether this is sounding more like a cord problem. Uh, we also have to ask about questions like bladder involvement. I might point more towards cord. And then when it gets to examination, it's the fairly typical examination most of the time. That is that they can lose their reflexes or they may be reduced. But then again, in small fiber neuropathy, the reflexes are normal. They will have abnormalities, perhaps to pinprick testing, temperature, joint position sense, vibration sense. And probably the other really important sign is if you see proximal weakness. I mean, proximal weakness in a peripheral neuropathy means we should really think carefully, is it a peripheral neuropathy? Or is it, by saying proximal, it's not peripheral, is it more likely a radiculopathy or coming from cord? Okay. I really like your clear thinking on that. So what investigations would you do if you suspect a peripheral neuropathy? Well, once you've done the history and examination, that's going to guide you. And EMG is what we always think about with peripheral neuropathy, but it isn't essential in all cases. EMG, and primarily I mean by that nerve conduction studies, that can support the involvement of large peripheral nerve fibres, remembering that small unmyelinated fibres, the ones that cause burning, are not measured with nerve conduction studies. It can show you certain patterns that tell you if it's an axonal or a demyelinating nerve problem. It gives you clues as to whether it's an hereditary one. And if we come back to the focal neuropathies, where we talked about carpal tunnel, Nerve conduction studies can be very important there. If you see someone who's diabetic with numb hands and numb feet, you really want to know what is the relative contribution of the numb hands from compressive carpal tunnel syndrome that may benefit from surgery, as opposed to whether the numb hands and numb feet are all just due to the diabetic peripheral neuropathy and won't improve with surgery. So nerve conduction studies can help in the way we assess the patient but I think there's a, a huge number of investigations we can do. And this is one of those situations where you choose your investigations based upon what your differential diagnosis is. And when we're thinking about the differential diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy, we need to remember that age itself is a risk factor for neuropathy. And we only find the cause in about 30% of patients with peripheral neuropathy. A lot of the other time, it's much more of an association, perhaps. And a good example of that is if you look at impaired glucose tolerance or a borderline blood sugar level, it is so prevalent as we get older, just because we find it does not even necessarily mean that is the cause of the neuropathy. Or if we take patients on statins, patients will look it up and see that statins are associated with an increased risk of neuropathy, but that doesn't mean it's causation, it might just be association. And the final point I'd make when we go through a list of causes is it's useful to think about when we get to the stage of management discussions. Because as you're managing the whole patient, we're gonna start thinking about double hits. You know, if we know that diabetes can cause neuropathy, age can cause neuropathy, alcohol can cause neuropathy, we're really gonna be thinking when we're counseling the patient, well, look, you've got this vulnerability, let's not give your nerves a second hit from excessive alcohol consumption or your glycemic state. So. I think this is one of the best acronyms that we use in neurology when I'm teaching medical students. I love your acronyms. The, uh, the, our podcast on migraines, this, uh, your acronym there got enormously positive feedback. Well, suffice it to say that this acronym has had to change with the passage of time from where it was when I was uh, doing my physician training. The acronym now is DAMITBITH, D-A-M-I-T, BITH is B-I-T-H. 
And needless to say, we had to move connective tissue diseases from the acronym into inflammatory because it was deemed a little bit politically incorrect. So if we just run through the, the core parts of the acronym, because it's going to guide us on investigations. D is for diabetes, A is for alcohol, M is for medication. A really good starting point so that you don't have medical students saying lead poisoning or porphyria as a cause of neuropathy is the first choice. Because in Australia, diabetes, alcohol, medications are the top three causes of neuropathy. I is for inflammatory and connective tissue diseases. T is for tumour. B is for B12, B1, B6, nutritional. I is for infection. T is for trauma. And H is for hereditary. So diabetes, alcohol, medications, inflammatory and connective tissue disease, tumour, B12 and other nutritional, infection, trauma, hereditary. And then if we expand on those a bit, we can see what investigations we need to do. So diabetes is diabetes and other metabolic. So we check the fasting blood sugar level, glycosylated hemoglobin, and sometimes we do a, glyc a glucose tolerance test. If we're thinking about alcohol and other toxins, uh, a lot of that's on history. We do a full blood picture, UNEs, LFTs and calcium. And it's worth talking about the other toxins. I mean, we don't see much glue sniffing, sniffing fortunately now. We still see patients who have been nanging and get B12 deficient. Uh, medications, there are plenty of medications that cause neuropathy. The prime ones are chemotherapy agents, obviously. We see it with phenytoin, with amiodarone, with colchicine. Uh, in, in rheumatology, we see it with TNF inhibitors and leflenamide. Uh, statins, there is an association of increased risk of neuropathy. We see it with antiretroviral therapy. We some, see it with some of the antibiotics, metronidazole and isoniazid. So that's really just going to be on the history. If we look at the inflammatory and connective tissue diseases, uh, I mentioned Guillain-Barre, what we now called acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, or AIDP. We see it in CIDP. We see it with the connective tissue diseases like Sjogren's and rheumatoid arthritis, celiac disease, rarely, sarcoidosis. And the investigations we do for those would be an ANA, an ENA. We may do a rheumatoid factor, antiphalagrin antibody. And I'll pause at this moment because as we go through, there's another level to all of these investigations. I mean, there is a third level you do if you're really chasing the inflammatory. And that's going to be one of the roles at general practice level. I mean, if patients get through to specialist clinics, they get every test known to man, whereas we're not going to do that on 25% of the population who have a peripheral neuropathy over the age of 70. But sometimes for inflammatory neuropathies, we do a group of tests called anti-gangliocyte antibodies that show an immune cause for the neuropathy or anti-MAG antibodies, particularly in those with paraprotein related. Uh, we can check the celiac disease serology. We can look for an ACE. Uh, the next group was tumour. Uh, paraprotein related, we're going to do their QEP, the immunofixational electrophoresis, and I tend to do serum-free light chains rather than Uri Benz-Jones proteins, although you can add in the latter. And with tumour-related, we think of paraneoplastic and patients just with malignancy, cachexia, or no specific reason can have a paraneoplastic sensory neuropathy very, very commonly. There are some more specific ones and I'll sometimes add in an anti-neuronal antibody, looking particularly for anti-HU antibody. Uh, sometimes if you've got a patient who has systemic illness, you get to the next level investigations. I mean, if the patient has lost weight, if the patient has been unwell, you might do a CT chest, abdomen and pelvis. 
uh, and we're really screening looking much harder given that the neuropathy may not be the primary issue. It may be a secondary indicator that something else is developing in the background. Uh, the next group is B12 related, and that really leads us into the nutritional. So we know that B12 and B1 deficiency cause it. And I mentioned nanging under alcohol and other toxins. Nanging, which is inhalation of nitrous oxide, which is a recreational activity, inhibits the activation of vitamin B12 and those patients present with what looks like subacute combined degeneration of the cord, but quite an acute history in a young person. Uh, we see it with vitamin B6 excess. And I would see that very frequently in patients with sensory neuropathy. B6 slips into so many things. I mean, you have plenty of B6 if you have a healthy diet when you look up the foods that are high in B6, but they slip B6 into magnesium, supplements, they put it in zinc supplements, every multivitamin has vitamin B6 in it, and it's not hard to go above 25 or particularly above 50 milligrams of vitamin B6 and start to get toxic and that causes a sensory neuropathy and some dorsal root ganglion involvement. Uh, and there are some other nutritional ones, uh, I mean we see copper deficiency after bariatric surgery rarely, particularly if people are zinc supplementing and uh, patients who've been very critical ill in ICU get a critical illness neuropathy that has a bit of a nutritional but also inflammatory and metabolic component. The next group, the eye, was infection. HIV can cause neuropathy. Lyme disease uh, can cause neuropathy. Leprosy is a very common cause outside of Australia, but also in Australia. And we do see it linked to other infections. Uh, I mean, an example is coronavirus, COVID, which is currently around. Most of those patients have had it in the setting of critical illness neuropathy. You can see it triggered by EBV, where it's an immune response. The next level is trauma. That's fairly straightforward. And then there's a large group of hereditary neuropathies. What used to be called Charcot-Marie Tooth, we now call hereditary motor sensory neuropathy. And those patients often have some clinical clues. They have uh, high arches, what we call pes cavus, and they have hematose. That may be a clue together with a family history that the patient has an hereditary motor sensory neuropathy, and we can evaluate that with molecular genetics. There are other conditions such as Fabry's disease, which is a metabolic disorder. They have angiokeratomas, they have classical changes on their cornea and they have an alpha-galactosidase A deficiency, they can present with ischemic heart disease at a young age and a burning neuropathy. Uncommon, but worth recognising because it is treatable now. It is, however, uncommon as are conditions such as amyloid. So the whole role, I think, of the GP when it comes to neuropathy is filtering out and sorting out the great majority of these patients that should be managed in general practice and a fairly straightforward initial screen, with or without electrophysiological studies, nerve conduction studies, that is fasting blood sugar level, glycosylated haemoglobin, an FBP, UNEs, LFTs, calcium, ANA, ENA, perhaps rheumatoid arthritis, serology, QEP, immunofixation, electrophoresis, serum free light chains, B6, B12, and that's a starting point. TSH we could add into that. I must say it's listed as a cause of peripheral neuropathy, but I've never seen it. And then we can move on to the next level investigations when they are appropriate. Okay, look, that's excellent. Uh, again, I love your clear thinking on these things. So in our next podcast, we'll talk about the management and treatment of peripheral neuropathies. I'd like to thank you, Peter, for this, and we'll speak again soon. Look forward to it.